radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions. And follow us on social media. Hello and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today we'll discuss the For the People Act as well as the cancer of voter suppression in America. And we'll illustrate for you the causal and historical connection between the conservative movement of the Reconstruction era circa 1865 and the modern conservative movement circa 2021. Before we get into any of that, I want to remind you that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post on Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's get into the shirt. Sean, what do you got? Well, I have a t-shirt that says Eurocycle Las Vegas because... Today, Jillian and I took delivery on brand new motorcycle, BMW uh-huh. R1250GS. So it's a pretty good day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's definitely one of my, it's probably my favorite. I don't own one. It's probably my favorite motorcycle of all time, though. Is it? Uh, the, tw- the, the 1200GS, uh, the, wow. the GS line. But uh, congratulations, Sean. It's a long time coming. And what an outstanding machine. What an outstanding machine. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just grinning from ear to ear. I mean, I had to get the chance to get back out on the road. It's been like 20 years since I've been on a motorcycle. So that was that was something else. <laughs> I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. And also, you uh, were saying that if I, if Lindsay and I ever fly out there, which we will at some point, we can rent from that dealership as well so that we can ride together, which is great. Yeah, they have a cut rate program. If you buy a motorcycle there, you get uh, in this club and uh, you can rent bikes for like a third the price. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe, now you, all you have to do is get a motorcycle license, Joe. Well, <laughs> I, I used I, I did a little motorcycle riding when I was uh, in my 20s, early 20s. And it's been, again, 30 years or something. But maybe. Who knows? You never know. Oh, it sounds enticing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Join the club. Join the club. <laughs> totally. So, uh, Joe, what do you got, man? Well, here, I want uh, the T-shirt I wanted to wear didn't come. But what I did wear... <laughs> was just a plain t-shirt because in a way I had a few other ones I could could have used, but when I was researching this subject, I'm like, I was just struck at how much I didn't know about it, mm-hmm. honestly. And I mean, I studied this in college. I read Du Bois in college. I took, you know, black history courses in college and all that, but still there's so much new scholarship and so much to this subject. And also a lot of it has been purposely silenced, erased. Talk about cancel culture, right? Mm-hmm. Cancel history, right? And so I think that that made sense for me to wear this. I love that, man. I love that because, and it, it's such, that's such an important point because this is a part of history that has been suppressed essentially, right? I mean, this yeah. is a story that has been suppressed and a lot it of the things, and Du Bois talks about this all, like uh, basically Du Bois rewrote the history of reconstruction. We're going to talk about this down the road, but the original story was this sort of like, you know, hunky dory, everything was fine. And the, the blacks fucked it up. And uh, thank God the whites got back in control and got the said that is, that was the story. That was the story. Yeah. And that is still like the, the lost cause narrative right. that still is pervasive in the South, right? It's the same. It's still pervasive. And it's, it's not, not in, 
there's so much resistance and you just, there's a lot of, of eye rolling among white people when you bring this up. And mm -hmm. uh, I've run across that even, yeah. you know, watching Me a movie too. like 12 years a slave. It's like, Oh, not that again. Yeah. That's I've had gotten that reaction from people. And it's, it's shocking because why wouldn't you want to know? Yeah. And it's important to understand. It's not just incidentally suppressed because people don't like history or ignorant. It's, it was systematically suppressed as a strategy. Absolutely. As an explicit strategy. And we'll talk more about that. And so my shirt today is the most provocative shirt that I own, which is my bling bling shirt, but it's really a noose around my neck. Yeah. And I haven't worn that since our, some of our, one of our very early episodes, but I thought it was really relevant today because for all the reasons what you were just saying, Joe, is that this sort of the story of the African-American experience in the United States is so heavily suppressed. And so, and, and, and like you're saying, Sean, people, if you even bring it up, people are saying it was so long ago. Why are you bringing yeah. this up? Right. Talking about cancel culture, like you're saying, yeah. Joe, like, can't we just forget about this? That's what, that's exactly. really what, the, what it all is. Like, why do we have to yeah. keep talking about this? Mm -hmm, is the reaction mm -hmm. that I've gotten so many times when bringing this up. Exactly. Yeah. And we really do need to talk about this precisely because, and we see, and this is what we're going to try and do in the show today, folks. And that is we are trying to connect for you what happened during Reconstruction, what happened in that history and how we are still living in, how what we're living through right now is so directly connected to it, almost verbatim right? In terms of the language that is used. So it's important. And so we're going to talk about it and it's going to be, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it because we do, but it's also going to be serious. And uh, mm -hmm. so let's, let's just jump right into this shit. So, and also everybody out there, I'll be doing a little more reading today than I usually do. So we'll have fun with that. And uh, but we're going to have a lot of convos as well. And I'm so glad Joe, that you're here to help us talk about this important topic, man. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So the For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1, passed the House of Representatives last week. It's nothing less than a modern voting rights act designed to combat the forces attacking democracy from the modern conservative right. We'll talk about H.R. 1 more in a minute. But first, I want to put it in context along the OG Voting Rights Act, as well as the events of March 7th, 1965, also known as Bloody Sunday. The anniversary of Bloody Sunday was last week, this past Sunday, and I think we ought to pay our respects, eh, gentlemen? For sure. In indeed, we do. We must pay our respects for the blood, sweat, and tears of all those who have struggled for this, these civil rights. And we have to pay our respect for the long suffering of African Americans throughout this nation's history. And we have to tell the truth, right? Truth and reconciliation. That's the reason why truth comes first before reconciliation. Mm -hmm. You can't have reconciliation until you have first the truth. And we have to have respect for the principles of equality, human dignity, and civil liberties as well, right? And that's, this is what we're supposed to be. Let's make it so. Oh, I love that. Make it so. Make it so. Well, <laughs> I, I really want to kind of draw particular attention also regarding the Selma situation to the white people who fought and gave their lives to register black voters. In particular, there are three white ministers, Orloff Miller, Clark Olson, and James Reeb, who were beaten by white supremacists. Reverend Reeb died of his injuries, and Reeb's killers were acquitted by an all-white jury. So this is an often overlooked part of the civil rights story, the vicious animosity of white people towards those who they consider to be race traitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super critical. And this is something that 
given my unique experience, well, unique is my personal experience uh, growing up as a black person in a white environment, right? So most of the people I've known in my life have been white. I mean, I going to school where I went, where growing up where I went, where I grew up and also living in Montana and all of that, right? So I have, I think I'm, I bring this up because my experience is a closeness with white folks <clears throat> that perhaps uh, the average black person doesn't feel that same level of connection. And I will say this, that there is something incredibly powerful about, uh, uh, non people of color, white people getting, putting their skin in the game, right. And pun intended, whatever, but in all seriousness, that is super powerful because without, without that, these, none of these movements work unless there's some white people or straight people, right. Or mm -hmm. men, right? right. All the, all these things, you have to have people that are privileged, willing right. to put their privilege on the line and say, no, I stand on principle with these brothers and sisters, and that is fucking critical. So, Sean, I think that's a really important point. Yeah, as I was reading the story, it really it really stuck out to me because that's, in a way, that's what all anti-fascists are doing, right? Mm -hmm. They are putting their lives, they're literally putting their bodies on the line. And that is something that the three of us aren't out in the street, but we are putting certainly putting our reputations on the line too. Yeah to right. speak out in favor of expanded civil rights. And there's a lot of people who don't like that. There's a lot of people that don't like that. And like yeah. you said, the sort of race trader, the men were men traders, right? We're race mm -hmm. traders. We're on, we are. And that is a badge that I wear proudly mm -hmm. because fuck your fascism, you know? <laughs> right. Well, we're, and, and, and it goes yep. to all the different struggles. We are cis straight mm. men, right? And so yep. we have the opportunity to be intersectional and really care about these other movements. And it's something that, you know, that's really the whole reason why we are doing the show, why we started the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get into the story of Bloody Sunday. I I think I, I got to be honest with everybody. When I was, was researching this, I didn't know the details and listening to it and reading it, I found it to be really powerful. So I'm going to read it now so that we can all, so the three of us can react to it. And so that everybody just gets a real sense of that so sort of suppressed history. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> For months, the efforts of the nonviolent coordinating committee to register black voters in the county seat of Selma have been thwarted. Peaceful demonstrations in Selma and the surrounding communities resulted in thousands of arrests, including that of MLK, who wrote to the New York Times, quote, this is Selma, Alabama. There are more Negroes in jail with me than there are on the voting rolls, end quote. I find that powerful. Wow. The man had a way with words. The man <laughs> had a way with words. The rising racial tensions finally bubbled over into the bloodshed in the nearby town of Marion on February 18th, 1965, when state troopers clubbed protesters and fatally shot an African-American demonstrator who was trying to protect his mother who was beating, being beaten by police. In response, civil rights leaders planned to take their cause directly to Alabama Governor George Wallace on a 54-mile march from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery. By a coin flip, it was determined that Hosea Williams and future Congressman John Lewis would lead the march. The demonstrators marched undisturbed through downtown Selma. As they began to cross a steel arch bridge spanning the Alabama River, the marchers gazed up to see the name of a Confederate general and reputed grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, Edmund Pettus, staring right back at them in big block letters emblazoned across the bridge's crossbeam. 
Once Lewis and Williams reached the crest of the bridge, they saw trouble on the other side, a wall of state troopers wearing white helmets and slapping billy clubs in their hands. Behind them were deputies of County Sheriff Jim Clark, some on horseback. There were also dozens of white spectators waving Confederate flags and giddily anticipating the showdown. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, Mayor John Clow called from his bullhorn. This is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. Go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. Mr. Major, replied Williams, I'd like to have a word. Can we have a word? I've got nothing to say to you, Cloud answered. Williams and Lewis stood their ground at the front of the line. After a few moments, the troopers, wearing gas masks and with clubs at the ready, advanced. They pushed back Lewis and Williams. Then the troopers quickened their pace. They knocked the marchers to the ground. They struck them with clubs. Clouds of tear gas mixed with the screams of terrified marchers and the cheers of reveling bystanders. Deputies on horseback charged ahead and chased the gasping men, women, and children back over the bridge as they swung clubs, whips, and rubber tubing wrapped in barbed wire. Although forced back, the protesters did not fight back. Television cameras captured the entire assault and transformed the local protest into a national civil rights event. Around 9.30 p.m., ABC newscaster Frank Reynolds interrupted the network's broadcast to air the disturbing newly arrived footage from Selma. Interestingly, the broadcast interrupted Judgment at Nuremberg, a movie that explored Nazi bigotry, war crimes, and the moral culpability of those who didn't speak out against the Holocaust. Nearly 50 million Americans who had tuned into the film's long-awaited television premiere couldn't escape the historical echoes of Nazi stormtroopers in the scenes of rampaging state troopers. Outrage at Bloody Sunday swept the country. Sympathizers staged sit-ins, traffic blockades, and demonstrations in solidarity with the, vo with the voting rights marchers. Some even traveled to Selma, where two days later King attempted another march. Finally, after a federal court order permitted the protests, the voting rights marchers left Selma on March 21st under the protection of federalized National Guard troops. Four days later, they reached Montgomery, with a crowd growing to 25,000 by the time they reached the Capitol steps. The events in Selma galvanized public opinion and mobilized Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act, which President Johnson signed into law on August 6, 1965. Today, the bridge that served as the backdrop to Bloody Sunday still bears the name of a white supremacist, but now it is a symbolic civil rights landmark. Now, gentlemen, in what ways do the events of the last year echo the events at Selma in terms of police action, political action, and white America's response to the modern version of the struggle for justice? Well, the echoes are clear. It, I mean, it goes beyond just an echo. Right? BML is an extension, a continuation of the political and moral efforts that began in the civil rights movement in post-war America after World War II, which itself was a continuation in a, of the goals and principles of reconstruction. Right? The U.S. Supreme Court decision banning school segregation and then Rosa Parks' refusal to move from a bus seat started really this impulse, this moment in our history. And it was about 80 years or so later after the end of Reconstruction, right? Something like that. And now BLM is 80 years after that. And mm -hmm. in between, we've had these white power backlash movements in both cases. And the echoes are clear. And let's not forget that soon after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated for his role in changing America towards the better, 
these backlashes are really episodes of violence and repression. It's not just disagreement, right? Extreme violence and repression. And you can look even today at these recent bills that are being proposed in the red states, one in Georgia, criminalizing food and water for people who get in line to vote. I mean, madness. It reminds me of like on the border, the ice patrol destroying caches of water for the undocumented. Like the cruelty is like the point, right? The cruelty is the point. It's terror. They don't Mm -hmm. care if these people, if people die, they would prefer they die than vote. Yes. So clearly there's a willingness to harm, right? And honestly, as a person uh, in general, I feel a responsibility to speak tooth to power, right? And for the dignity and the political rights for all people. And we especially have to focus on the people who have had those things denied. Right? Being a white man, I can easily ignore racism, as you said, Christoph, a little while ago. It would not impact my life directly if I did, right? That's very much unlike people of color. They have no choice. They don't right. have that privilege, as I do. I'm an ally because I feel a moral responsibility. And I want to share in this social justice effort, not despite my privilege, but because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still can't believe we're fighting the same fight today, honestly, in some ways. I really can't. Yes, I thought racism was still a deep problem in America before the Trump era. But I thought that at least in the legal and the political arena, that progress was more or less locked in institutionally. And clearly it isn't. I mean, you can see all the cases where that legal progress has been pushed back. And the thing is, in the 60s, the courts provided assistance to civil rights. They were on that side for the most part. Right. Today, I mean, look at the makeup of the, of the Supreme Court and other federal courts. It really doesn't inspire much confidence, does it? Not at all. <laughs> no, it sure doesn't. It yeah. sure doesn't. It, it's especially like what really burns me up, okay, is the selective memory and the selective outrage. And what when these gross injustices happen, it's obvious what's going on. And then all of a sudden, the whataboutism and the both sidesism and, oh, let's look over here at Antifa. Okay. And the thing, even beyond that, what really irritates me is the reframing of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy. I mean- Oh, drives me fucking crazy. Dr. King is safely dead, right? He's no longer, because if he was alive, let me tell you, Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. He'd have a lot to say about he this. He would have a lot to say. And so, but he's safely dead. And this is why conservatives have been trying to draw this super fucking dishonest distinction between Martin Luther King's work and the modern civil mm. rights groups like BLM. And, you know, we have to remember at the time it was very different. Okay. Because Martin Luther King had crosses burned in front of his house multiple times. He was hated by white America and he was ultimately murdered by a a white supremacist. So, but on a more fundamental level, what stood out to me about last summer's protest is the absolute disingenuous nonsense of people who are worried about looting and property damage. This is just like, it's every time. It didn't matter. Every time. You know, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, whether it's BLM, whatever the protest, if people are are out in the streets protesting for justice, the right wing goes, oh, you're, you know, you're breaking windows. It's like, oh, basically, we don't care what your grievance is. 
nothing's more important right now than this particular plate glass window or this particular retail <laughs> store right, or right. some building that's been set on fire that's fucking insured, okay? Right, yeah, exactly. And you know, you know what, by the way, I just I'm sorry to jump in here, but my favorite is that like then with the Capitol riot, when there really was a riot and there yeah. really was people violently trying to overthrow democracy and play it down, not a big deal. What are you talking about? Can you imagine if that had been really had been Antifa? Can you even oh, God, imagine? No. They would have been people would have been shot and yep. it would have been a bloodbath. And it's just, you know, even now what's happening is you can see the lines being drawn where a lot of senators and congressmen on the right are saying, why do we have to have all these National Guard troops here? And mm -hmm. and then downplaying the riot like, oh, well, I didn't really feel threatened by them because obviously they weren't going to murder right wingers. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So that that gallows was not. For, for Rand Paul or for Ted Cruz. Right, you know? right, right. That's right. That's right. It really wasn't. <laughs> We're sitting here having this conversation and it's just so insane. Like you said, Sean, the false equivalence and the and the both sidesism. And, and it drives me fucking nuts because it it waters down the conversation. And now, and you know what it does? It pulls everybody down into the muck. Right now, oh, we're all now it all even. Yep. And, and then it gives people cover to say they're all just a bunch of bums they're mm -hmm. all politicians are all the same both sides the corporate dems oh the corporate dems no it's just okay neutrality favors the oppressor and that's what they're going for okay mm -hmm. because again i just want to say like property's insured folks but the lives of black men who are shot or george floyd for example are not you can't there's no insurance that can bring those people back so it's just it's a heads I win, tails you lose strategy on the part of the right and on the part of Fox. I mean, look, there was a sea of red hats and crosses. And I mean, it was white Christian nationalists who attacked the Capitol, right? And there wasn't a black person in sight, hardly. There might've been like two, okay? Mm -hmm. but, but it's exactly. just- this is just a dis despicable lack of accountability. And it represents every time someone talks about it in this way, they are flat out lying across the board. Yeah. For sure. And it's objective, right? It's objectively true what you're saying, Sean. I mean, you can clearly see it's really white nationalism. The, the evidence is overwhelming, just like the evidence of when Martin Luther King was advocating for civil rights. Mm -hmm. Look at the original sources. Look at the newspaper articles. Look at what people were saying. Look at exactly. what it's all there. It's right? all there. To, and people just summarily and willfully ignore that to, to, in order to justify, they use Martin Luther King's legacy to justify this backlash racism, which is just awful. Awful. You know? Awful. And you know what? As I was reading this quote and, and, and researching, this idea of the state troopers literally slapping the billy clubs in their hands, mm -hmm. it's like out of a it's like a caricature of a bad guy. Like, do they also have like like wispy mustaches that they like twist at the <laughs> end and go, ha 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 ha? Like, I yeah. mean, like literal, like, and by the way, can we talk about for a second? Like apparently they made homemade weapons, tubes covered in barbed wire. That's what you bring mm. to a crowd. To a crowd, there is no uh, world in which this was really about crowd control, right? When you bring a barbed wire covered tube from home to beat up protesters, and by the way, beat up women and children. And, and, you, and you, you would not use those on dogs. Dogs no. deserve better than that. Dogs get better than that, right? And by the way, and, and let's talk about the white mob that showed up as if it was a sporting event, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Waving, by the way, Confederate flags. Let's stop fucking pretending that we'll pretend the Confederate flag is about heritage, right? Um, right. 
but like, but again, this language and the harshness and, and the fact that, and I, I read more about this and they were, they're cheering, they're reveling, watching people get beat by barbed wire. I mean, this is a level of sickness and that I brought this up because the white Christian nationalism, I mean, mm-hmm. there it is. And like we were saying at the top of the show, the, the cruelty is the point. The cruelty well, is the point. It, it's entertainment. Okay. It's like the Coliseum. Or it's mm-hmm. like people going to, you know, the town square and watching an execution or the lynchings themselves where they sold, yeah, you right. know, popcorn and yeah, snacks. Popcorn. Yeah. Just entertainment. They advertised it. They advertised, mm-hmm. right? You go at, at your local church, you could get a little advertisement, a little flyer about the, I mean, this is what we're talking about here. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. Well, it's all that is true, but it goes even beyond that because if you think about it, these public spectacles are meant to terrorize. Yes. Mm -hmm. And terror controls, it's about control. It's about putting fear into people so they behave the way you want them to. And so the lynchings themselves really have played that role, right? They terrorized, you know, people. And that is a classic method of control by terrorists. That's what terrorism is, if you think about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to uh, move on now. So the the foundations of the bloody Sunday assault lie in the tacit deal struck between poor white folks and powerful white folks in America, in particular during the portion of American history known as Reconstruction. Rarely has that peculiar relationship between poor white folks and rich white folks been so eloquently elucidated than it is in W.E.B. Du Bois's seminal book, Black Reconstruction in America. And those of you who follow the show know that I uh, read this book over the course of a long time, and I'm a big fan of it. So finally, we're doing something with it. The book is outstanding. In fact, I think it's, it ranks above the top five uh, most important books I've ever read. It puts modern American politics and social issues into an indispensable context, but it really is a long fucking book. And I couldn't convey to you all the ideas in the book, even if I wanted to, and I don't want to. Everyone should read the book, or if you are like me, you can listen to it. And there's also a lot of summaries and excerpts and quotes and great stuff from it. Still, I do want to extract and present to you some of the broader themes in the book over time and in light of current events. Today happens to be one of those days. Comments, guys? Any comments? Well, I mean, the Reconstruction was a period of short period of a decade or so. Mm -hmm. And the the short term gains that African-Americans, previously enslaved human beings made during Reconstructions, in turn, really created a very powerful backlash. And mm-hmm. it's an echo of what's happening today. You see what the first black president, Barack Obama, the rage literally be, you know, behind that success and the fact that you know, it represented a loss of power, right? And the empire striked back again, right? Another backlash. In his book, Du Bois tells a story of emancipation of a people that for centuries were enslaved by the millions, tens of millions. And it was the worst kind of slavery, right? There's really different levels of slavery. Chattel slavery is way up there. It's the worst. It's about as and bad as it gets, right? It I mean, really like- is. Yeah. And now we have to fight dominant narratives that are deceptive. And just, for example, what you mentioned earlier, Christoph, the lost cause, you know, uh, narrative, mm-hmm. the Civil War was this, this noble effort about states' rights, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's it's a way of negating very strategically, right? So that you can develop some kind of legitimacy behind what you, you know, this very unethical 
cause of yours. And there's also the, the silencing of the atrocities. So many atrocities, right? And that's why I'm wearing the shirt. That's why I'm wearing the shirt today. I mean, the number of unmarked graves, um, right. no, no graves, silenced. <clears throat> and I, I want to learn more. I mean, frankly, in researching the show, I was shocked mm-hmm. at how much I didn't know about the level of violence against African-Americans during this time. It's staggering. It, it, it reminds me in many ways of that of the extreme repression and violence that I, I focused on and studied in my advocacy when I was young, with 20th century dictatorships mm. in around the world to destroy any aspirations at all of democracy, right? Or to keep people as servants of one form or another. Uh, during and after Reconstruction, tens of thousands of black activists, those who could challenge the white nationalist order uh, were summarily and quietly executed. And so this is beyond the lynchings, right? Mm -hmm. The lynchings were public spectacles. This is not what we're talking about here, right? These were like the disappeared in Argentina or in El Salvador, Mm -hmm. right? Under those brutal dictatorships. It was people, they were targeted, people that presented a threat at some level because maybe they were potential leaders coming up in the civil rights, I mean, in in the reconstruction era and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Robert Small, he was a black congressman, I think in the 1880s. And he gave a speech in Congress about this and he presented his findings, right? Something Mm -hmm. like he had evidence for about 53,000 executions. And it's interesting that the Smithsonian's just posted a good article about it, if you're interested. That's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, that's... How many Americans know that? How none. many Americans know that? None. Almost none. Like, none. Yeah. And, it's, and the other thing that I want, what I really want to think about is what precisely was being reconstructed here? What is reconstruction, right? It's not just a matter of putting the nation back together after a civil war. It goes way beyond that, right? There's a social contract created by the Constitution. And that was a revolutionary step forward in many ways. But it was also greatly flawed because it was, even within its own internal logic, there was no democracy or no political rights like voting for so many people, (laughs) Right? Reconstruction, right. reconstruction was about extending the, the social contract to everyone, right? Uh, well, at that time, it was just men. Women came right. a little later, right? Let's not forget that. But reconstruction was a, is still a work in progress. It was still trying to do that, right? I mean, look at the, the latest with tra- the transgender movement. It was still living that today. What we're talking about here is clearly primarily affected African-American people, but we're also talking about the reconstruction of our entire society, our whole social order of Mm -hmm. who we want to be, right? It's a living process. It's happening today, right? And of course, reconstruction failed in many ways, right? In most ways, it's been glossed over as we talked about in American history. And really, we need to bring it back. We need to bring this knowledge, this truth back. And this is what this show is all about. So I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, well, I want to mention because we there was, it's not that Reconstruction failed, it was deliberately ended. 
and torpedoed torpedoed like I, i've brought this up before on the show but i want to bring it up again and that is the 1876 presidential election was within one mm -hmm. electoral vote it was 185 to 184 rutherford b hayes and he was running against uh, samuel tilden now it was a contested election just like what happened with trump and biden except for this time it really was close so <laughs> <laughs> it really was close right but there yeah. was a deal there was a deal that was made and rutherford b hayes was allowed to assume office in exchange for a promise to withdraw federal troops from the south and end reconstruction so what happened there is it was the Democratic Party at that time, which was taking the role that the Republican Party is taking today in terms of opposing civil rights. And so the Democrat did not get to assume uh, the presidency, but the Republican had to promise to end Reconstruction. And so, you know, and <clears throat> this was essentially giving the green light for more of these slaughters to take place. And and this is like, you know, you mentioned, Joe, 53,000. And I don't know what that includes, but there were many, many repeated massacres of black people in American cities that weren't just targeting activists. It was like, mm -hmm. they, they just absolutely, they were just, you know, simply running people out of town or shooting them just for being successful, just for working hard and doing well trying to play, they were trying to play by the white man's rules and they were succeeding. I mean, they were, right. and so we can look at the Wilmington massacre in 1898. That's a famous example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also the Tulsa race massacre in 1921. That's and, a huge, that's, that was a real famous one. Yeah. But yeah. the Wilmington one is one that nobody's like, people are starting to hear about the Tulsa massacre, but Wilmington is like, mm. it just doesn't exist. And there were dozens of others there where were. the white city fathers would just, if there was a black mayor elected, they would run him out of town and they would go in and just destroy and bomb black neighborhoods, just shoot everybody. Uh, they burned the newspaper in Wilmington because the newspaper was giving fair coverage to black people. I mean, so it just, it goes on and on. And most Americans also don't realize that when black people ran for office and they won, okay, they were subject to violent coups almost mm -hmm. as a matter of course. Mm -hmm. And, or they just wouldn't be allowed to take office. They would say, we're not going to seat you. Even though you got the most votes, we're not going to seat you. Yep. And, the, and this, right, this constant injustice. And it, it's, I read, Du Bois really talks a lot about the violence and he calls it lawlessness of the South during that time. And really what you got was, it was like a sport shooting black people, right? Like it wasn't, cause what we, we talk about, like you we were talking about lynchings, we talk about riots, but it was like, just like a bunch of guys get drunk at a bar and they go out and just start shooting black people, right? And that's, and when we, so when they, when we say things like, Black Lives Matter. The reason why that phrase exists, right? Because people say, well, 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 black lives didn't matter. They were cheap. The cheap doesn't even begin to describe it. And even all the records that we have of this era, we know that they are not complete. And that doesn't even begin to go into the, the millions and millions of men and, and women and children that died under who were enslaved and died. And there's right. no record of them at all. Right. Right. And, Dead men tell no tales. Exactly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Du Bois. I want to give you a little bit of a background on mm -hmm. him. And to say that he stood out among his contemporaries is an understatement. Uh, he was born in Massachusetts on February 23rd, 1868. He grew up in a relatively tolerant and integrated community, which is like 
that existed in 1868. Who fucking <laughs> knew? But relatively, right? It, it was, it, he didn't get murdered. So, okay, you know, he survived. Great. He completed his graduate work at Harvard, where he was the first African-American to earn a doctorate. Du Bois afterward became a professor of, of history, sociology, and economics at Atlanta University. He was a sociologist, a socialist, a historian, a civil rights activist, a pan-Africanist, an author, a writer, and an editor. Du Bois was also one of the founders of the NAACP. He died on August 27th, 1963. Black Reconstruction in America is the history of Reconstruction era written by Du Bois and first published in 1935. Black Reconstruction literally rewrote the official history of the Civil War and Reconstruction eras. Prior to Du Bois, it was commonly accepted that civil war was a tragic conflict that set brother against brother with the generic slaves acting merely as a historical backdrop. It was equally accepted that the Reconstruction period following the Civil War was disastrous, caused by premature granting of civil rights and political rights to African-Americans. As Du Bois states in the book, quote, the three common theses about Reconstruction were all Negroes are ignorant, all Negroes were lazy, dishonest, and extravagant, and Negroes were responsible for bad government during Reconstruction. Where have we heard these kinds of tropes before about Black Jeez. people, guys? Have we ever heard these before? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'll start by trying to answer on a personal level. I mean, my first exposure to these tropes were personal. I mean, mm -hmm. my, and they really go back a long way. My first vivid memory of encountering this kind of racial a a animosity and hatred is as a child in the playground, where the kid, the kids made us made everybody compare their skin color with their forearms. Mm -hmm. And there was one African American child in the park, and I was the second darkest skin kid in the neighborhood because I was an immigrant, a Sicilian, and and every all of this was made clear you know, to both of us that we were somehow deficient because of it. And that experience never left me, probably mm -hmm. shaped my views later on. That's the thing. These things like build, they, they, they accumulate, they're deep and formative and they sink in. And then in high school, I was fortunate. I had a really good teacher that exposed me to some African-American history, which at the time was rare, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not so much now, but it, it was. And what is shocking and deeply sad to hear is now the these these tropes, which were once kind of kept in check, more in the dark, quiet corners uh, uh, of society, and now they're being proclaimed loudly across social media and in social circles. And the three of us and many other, are, we're trying to get the message out that white nationalism is on the resurgence, mm -hmm. coming mainstream, and it's normalized again. And I think this is happening because of this backlash, clearly. But fortunately, I think people are starting to pay more attention. And that's good, because if we don't fight this, it will continue to grow, mm -hmm. to gain power. And anyone with an honest appraisal of history knows where that leads, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just want to say, because these things <clears throat> that are said about Black people, whether lazy, inferior, all of these things, they are projections, okay? Because mm. what it really comes down to is that white Americans back then didn't want to compete with free black people, and they don't want to compete with them now. And they are concerned that they might be inferior, that they might be lazy, that they might be involved in bad governance. I mean, look at it. Look at the look at all of the corruption throughout 
the Republican Party, which is the white supremacist party. It is nothing but corruption. And so everything that is said about black people is a projection of the values and characteristics of white supremacy. And so mm -hmm. that is really important right. to, re to, to realize is that what they are saying, they are saying what would need to be true to justify what they want to do, which, right. is, to, which is disenfranchisement, which is murder, which is basically oppressing an entire people that they just wish weren't here. So, yeah. and again, like I was a product of the 60s. I, you know, I grew up in the 60s. And so I don't really even know where to start about these racist tropes because mm -hmm. my childhood was an, it was an interesting paradox on race issues because my dad had started a church several years before I was born. And it was in Washington, D.C. And most of his, orig his original congregation was black, like 80%. So on one level, I mean, he made his living ministering to these people. And so there was a kind of veneer of respect and equality in the church. But at the same time, we moved across the country to Colorado and there were several black people still uh, you know, in the church and on the church staff. Black people took care of me while I was growing up. And still though, there was a subtle but unmistakable view that I took on that black people were inferior. There was just, you know, there were jokes, there were knowing looks, there's like statements like, yeah, but you know, he's black kind of mm -hmm. comments that's, that I, that's what i mean exactly mm -hmm. i heard this from my earliest ages and yeah. i remember my father making fun of what i now know is african-american vernacular english by claiming that he couldn't understand what they were talking about mm -hmm. a lot of times and so it wasn't i i have to say like my dad wasn't mean-spirited about it it was just it's just the way it was back then sure and he did have many black church members. And so he wasn't a like typical American racist. Okay. But there was still this subtle thing that was going on. And he trusted a young black man named Leon who drove me to school every day and, and took care of me a lot of the time. So I took on some of these conflicted attitudes. I mm -hmm. personally remember looking down on some of the black kids that we had in the school and I told racist jokes. And it wasn't until I was a little older and I traveled to Africa when I was around 14. And I had the experience then of seeing an entire society composed of only black people. And that really made me reevaluate my thinking. Because even though it was a poor country, I mean, it was a serious, it was a country. There's a whole, there's nothing but black people here, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and we went there because in the first place, my parents had appointed a bishop in Ghana. His name was Herbert Kraku, and he built a pretty large following. So we get there and there's like hundreds of people, right? So, but knowing black people in America as a minority versus knowing an all black congregation in Africa, whole different experience. Mm, right. That's really interesting. I, first of all, I think it's super important to, uh, to hit on uh, how important it is, Sean, to hear you just sort of own up to, I mean, obviously you were a kid. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think back to, for example, when I, I, I make this analogy a lot, when I talk about how I would love for all of us to be able to have conversations about race. And that is, I think back to, I growing up in high school, I said anti-LGBT jokes. It, to, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, that was like part of my vernacular everywhere. everywhere, pervasive. Right. And I basically, and even beyond that though, that was almost just because I was just saying what everybody else was saying was a little bit less like, but the way I thought about women, I think was, I think 
I look back on it was bad. It was, it, it's subtle. It wasn't like I hated women or I just thought women were by, because my, I've, I grew up in the church, same church you did. Strong female leadership was something that I was familiar with. My mom mm-hmm. has always been a, like the stronger person, like sort of in my family group, but still I look back on how I thought about women and how I thought about women's role perhaps. And I'm, I'm embarrassed by that, but I think that being able to say that outright and say like, look, that's who I was. Because what most Americans try to do is like, oh no, I never was racist. Oh no, I never was sexist. I was always this perfect person today, right? But that's a lie. That's a lie. And when we tell that lie, it's the same lie we tell about America, guys. It's the same fucking lie. We refuse to look look at the reality of what America is and what it was. That doesn't mean we hate America. It doesn't mean that we doesn't mean that we, we don't we're not committed to this country or we don't love it. It just means that we recognize it for actually what it is. And that, like you said earlier, Joe, you cannot, truth must come first. Reconciliate. You right. cannot try to paper over reconciliation. And that is what this country has tried to do. Mm-hmm. Right. It's tried to just paper over all that stuff. It's like, wait, we're, everything's okay now, right? Which, by the way, it isn't. But even yeah. if it were, you know? I just have a real quick thing I want to interject there, and that is that if you're an American, okay, you're either a racist now or you're a former racist. Absolutely. There's no such thing as as anybody in America who's white who was never a racist. Okay, that just does not exist. And so (laughs) you have a choice. You could become a former racist and an anti-racist, right? Right, But you cannot say that you're not racist. It doesn't exist. And I'm living testimony to that. And so I think is everyone that we grew up with. Absolutely. And I think, but it's, I think it's brave to, to, and I I don't want to pat myself on the back or pat you on the back in that and say like, oh, but this is what it, because it's hard for people, people are unwilling to do this or unwilling to look at their behavior. And by the way, maybe if someone never told a racist joke in their entire life, but they still turned a blind eye, right? You heard a racist joke and you didn't say anything. You saw, you saw sexism and you didn't say anything, right? You, and, and this is how most of that kind of racism exists, Mm -hmm. right? The tolerance of it. And we talk about this all the time, right? You cannot have a racist society. You cannot have a fascist society without acquiescing people, acquiescers. And this isn't about human perfectibility. Nobody expects right, exactly. any of us to be perfect in this, right? We're going to make mistakes. And we may still even make mistakes. I may Absolutely. even someday say something that's homophobic or, or whatever it might be. Exactly. But you own up to it, right? Mm-hmm. That's and it. you're mindful of your own responsibilities and your own agency in the world. You own up to it. And you try to get better. You try to improve. You don't, and and what you see among a lot of white people in terms of race is this immediate defensiveness. Mm -hmm. That's right. Comes up and like, no, that's not me. Why you? How dare you? Right. 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 And it's like, dude, just listen and just be honest with yourself. Nobody's expecting you to be perfect. We're expecting you to be ethical and honest. There's only means. There's only one reason that anybody would actually try to deny it is because they know it's true. Exactly. You would not have that kind of reaction. Like if you were just not racist and you'd never been racist, (laughs) you would just go, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Like you can call me that, but I'm not. But they get incensed and they actually consider it to be a form of racism to even raise the Even bring it up. And right, this is a a big Tucker Carlson uh, piece, Mm -hmm. right? Is that we talked about this, I think last week, Sean, is that like, no, you're the racist for bringing up racism as if being Mm -hmm. called racist is worse than the actual racism, right? Like, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, let's move on. So 
Du Bois argued directly against the accounts, these tropes, and he emphasized the role of agency that the Black folks during the Civil War and Reconstruction in framing Reconstruction as a period that held promise for a worker rule democracy to replace slavery as a plantation economy. Now, I think this is important because he is definitely a socialist, right? And he was all about sort of uniting sort of poor former slaves in the South with the sort of agrarian, poor, white, landless whites in the South who really lived. This is a a thing that people don't know either. They basically lived under de facto slavery also, right? They Mm -hmm. had, they, if you didn't have land in the South, you had nothing. These people were eating dirt, I mean, dirt poor, that's where it comes from, right? Talk about wealth disparity, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the most, and by, and there was no public schools in the South because they didn't want to pay the taxes to have a public school system. So literally you had a bunch of uneducated whites Mm -hmm. and, and, but again, this is important because we talk about the, our focus today is going to be the theme in Du Bois's book called related to the quote white worker, which he covers Mm -hmm. in great detail throughout the book, but especially in chapter two, which he unambiguously titles the white worker. I want to open up this topic for discussion, but first I want to frame the issue with two quotes from the book. The first regards the white worker before the emancipation of enslaved black folks. Quote, considering the economic rivalry of black and white worker in the North, it would have seemed natural that the poor white would have refused to police the slaves. But two conditions led him in the opposite direction. First of all, it gave him work and some authority as an overseer, slave driver, and member of the patrol system, patrol system later known as police, uh, <laughs> right? That, that was a, the precursor to the police. But above and beyond this, it fed his vanity because it associated him with the masters. Slavery bred in the poor white, a dislike of Negro toil of all sorts. He never regarded himself as a laborer or as part of any labor movement. If he had any ambition at all, it was to become a planter and to own niggers, end quote. And no, you don't get to say that word because I just did, unless you're black. The second quote is related to the white worker in the antebellum South. Uh, Quote, it must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a low wage, they were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn from their ranks and the courts, depended upon their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their vote selected public officials, and while this had small effect on the economic situation, had a great effect on their personal treatment and the deference shown them. White schoolhouses were the best in the community and conspicuously placed, and they cost anywhere from twice to 10 times as much per capita as the colored schools. The newspapers specialized on news that flattered the poor whites and almost utterly ignored the Negro except in crime and in ridicule, end quote. Gentlemen, will you connect for our listeners the sentiment and circumstances captured in these quotes with the political and social landscape that we're navigating right now in our America? Boy, there's so much. There's a lot there. Oh, but, you know, let's start with one one fundamental thing. It's a central function of hierarchy to create these feelings and attitudes of superiority mm-hmm. right? as a purpose. It's a utility. Whites having authority over previously enslaved black people, right? What Du Bois said associated him, the white worker, with the masters mm-hmm. is a way of making the whole hierarchy function, particularly for the top echelons, right? 
To establish a society without that social hierarchy also threatens all of hierarchy, right? Economic, religious, and so forth. And so these racist sentiments in this racist classification plays a function of maintaining the overall societal order, right? So it's not, we can talk about the hatred and the animus and the, the vitriol and, and the violence, but also we have to look at it from a systemic point of view, a political economy point of view, right? That this had a function, right? The quotes, for example, the quotes about white schools being funded at much higher levels of black school at the time could be said today. I mean, it's literally, not, it's yeah. not that much different because again, today we have a political economy that encourages that all of this interlinks with class, right? And poverty. And by the way, also, there's also a whole gender dynamic to this as well, right? Mm -hmm. Which is all, obviously a huge topic. Uh, the solution, of course, to improving all this is government support, government programs. And guess what? This is exactly what the right opposes, mm -hmm. right? Government, to them, it's interference in people's lives or the economy and whatnot. Well, well so much more I could say, but Sean, you take it. <laughs> well, okay. I just wanted to pick up on this thing about schools because we know that the yeah. entire backlash against civil rights really started even before the Civil Rights Act was signed. And that was due to desegregation. And, you know, we've mentioned this before, but Virginia closed their entire school system for like a year and a half or two years rather than integrate. And so this, the, the, the John Birch Society and the entire Christian right really got on the bandwagon to attack public schools. And they've been really successful. One of the things that they did, obviously, was to fund public schools through property taxes, ensuring that the poorer neighborhoods would have worse schools. So it's, rather than just funding them federally for everyone across the board, they wanted to make sure that, they, that all schools were funded through property taxes. So this was the first cut. But then the second cut was when they started going after teachers unions. And they started going mm -hmm. after public school funding in general and then going for vouchers and privatization. So now what they've got is they've essentially they're trying to reestablish segregation through the charter school system. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and by defunding public schools and funding these charter schools, which ironically has had the effect in many cases of starving black school districts. And so then you get you get black parents who, you know, they're fed up with the public school system. And so then they start wanting to have private schools and homeschooling, all that kind of stuff because they care about their kids. So exactly. It's been a just a wholesale assault on education. And that's something. But the I think another issue we got to talk about here also is is just the labor issue. And mm -hmm. yep. the huge. The impact of Huge. slavery on white labor, because ultimately what you had in the South was a kind of a third world country because you didn't have a lot of good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have most of the labor is being done for free. So why is anybody going to hire poor whites to do work when they've got black people doing it for free? Right. So it, it just depressed wages. And the other thing that they did during slavery was to lease out the labor of slaves mm -hmm. to local merchants and manufacturers. And so obviously these people are getting skills, black carpenters, stonemasons, wheelwrights, plumbers, mechanics, distillers, even cowboys. I yep. read a, a stat the other day that like 40% of American cowboys were black. Yeah. So, Isn't that something? I know this statistic yeah. and it's astonishing because all those cowboy movies that came out in the fifties, yes. how yeah. many, I mean, black at 40%, that's a huge percentage. Yeah. I mean, out of a group of people, that's only like 13% of the population and 40%. And that's because right. the job, it's like oh, super hard and super dangerous, which is probably yeah. why. Right. And also out in the frontier, it's a lot right. easier to be a black person out there 
there, right? right. Where you're just on your own, right? You can, by the way, you have a gun, you can defend yourself again, mm-hmm. right? And, and and so all these things, but anyway, I didn't want to cut you off there, Sean, but that statistic was just like, no, well, I mean, it's just, it just speaks to the whole of the rise of black tradesmen, right? And people really good who built this country, right? And this was a strong disincentive for white men to become tradesmen. Instead, what do they want to do? They want to become part of the owner class. They want to own slaves, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that was a better path for them than actually doing the work. And yeah. so, and then of course, it goes without saying that in that sort of environment of forced labor, any sort of unionization or workers' rights movement were just out of the question. Nope, not even on the table. And this is one of the things that I want to sort of highlight here is this connection between what we see now from the conservative right, but the rank and file, right? Not the CEOs, not the politicians, not the, the business owners, but the rank and file. And I, every trades van that I that drives by right now that I see out this window is going to have a don't tread on me sticker, which is a low key Trump sticker at this point, right? Um, mm. You can't really put a Trump sticker on your car around here where I live just because I mean, unless you're somebody roundly mocked, but but you can definitely put a don't tread on me sticker or a blue lives matter right. sticker on your car. And you're basically saying the same thing. But my point is that these folks you hear this all the time. I don't want a government handout, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want, I don't want, I don't need the government to help me out. I need the government out of my life. And really what it, and then you see these folks voting against their own interests, people that are in unions voting for union busting politicians who are explicitly union busters, right? right. And it's like, and it's this thing of being like, yeah, I don't want to be associated with because they associate Democrats and mm-hmm. and government help with blacks and Latinos and all those people. We're not one of those people. We're one of these people, right? We are one of the, we're one of the, we're the owner class. And so we're seeing this same thing play out. The theme is the same, don't you guys think? It is. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you think about the whole uh, gig economy thing was sort of advertised as like the entrepreneurial economy. Everybody yeah, can be an yeah, owner. Yeah, yeah. Everybody can be there. And, and it turned out it's just another form of like debt peonage. And so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, honestly, such a it's sucky jobs. I mean, it's like, yeah. no, who wants to do that? It, it's, it's such a joke because like, right. It's just another excuse to strip workers rights away. Exactly. So that's all it really is. Yeah. You don't qualify under the worker laws anymore because you're nope. a contractor. It, it blew my mind because in California, there was actually a proposition that just passed right. uh, last year about this where, I mean, California is a liberal state, normally support would support workers uh, and labor rights. But because uh, Uber and Lyft and a bunch of these other companies spent like $200 million to advertise and they made it seem like, hey, the government's trying to take away your ability to go into business for yourself. Right. And so this affects everybody. And what it means is that you're working for sub minimum wage often mm-hmm. because you have to take care of your own expenses and you don't get benefits. You don't get vacation days and, and you probably don't even get work comp. I don't even know. That's right. And what's even worse no, that these, like, so. these I, don't, I don't think you do. And I think the same folks that are trying to make every employee basically uh, like basically destroy the concept of an employee right and right. just basically have you are an independent economic unit these are the same folks who then don't want to f- fund healthcare right, right. if the, if you're going to do this then you have if you want to do it that way fine but then you have to use the government to to replace all the rights that a corporation used to give people right because mm-hmm. a corporation gives you a 401k 
right? It gives you a, it gives you some level of stability. It gives you, and, and you pay into unemployment, but it's like, and, and of course the biggest thing obviously is healthcare. And so you cannot be an independent contractor in the gig economy with yeah. the way the healthcare system works right now. You, maybe if you're lucky, you live in a blue state that took the Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. and, ta- and takes Obamacare seriously. But if you live in fucking Missouri or something, you're fucked. Yeah. Totally. And there's one really important thing a lot of people don't realize, and I just can't believe that Democrats didn't make a bigger issue of this. But if you work for yourself, you pay 15% self-employment tax. Whereas if you work for an employer, it's only seven because the employer has to pay the other the other seven point whatever it is. Okay, so immediately as soon as you become a gig worker, you're paying double Social Security. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. crazy. Now I would like to take this back to our, our bigger issue, which is the political economy of slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. about it when in the antebellum America, the, those ex-slave owners and also anybody from the north who wanted to take advantage of the chaos in the south, right? They really wanted a cheap available labor supply that could not walk out and move and leave right 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 that's what they wanted that's what they needed to maintain the social political economic hierarchy mm-hmm. and so a lot of what happened okay we can look at it in terms of ha- racial hatred which it was but it was also strategy to control the labor force right and in fact a lot of the things started to change in the south when you had the great migrations, right? Mm. And when African-Americans began to leave and could leave and went north, because now all of a sudden in the north, now you had all kinds of industrial work, right? Because the industrial revolution was happening, right? Industrial capitalism, you had four company hiring people. So all of a sudden you had this this ability for millions of of African-Americans to leave the South. And that's what they were trying to avoid. And then it happened again after World War II, right? There's another Mm -hmm. one after that. And so all of these strategies right to vagrancy laws right mm-hmm. so to all of these ways of 13th amendment was about we can't have slavery of course unless you break the law then arrest we'll everybody make, exactly <laughs> we'll, make the, we'll, we'll make it we'll make it so easy to violate these laws exactly that, like, any right. kind of infraction is like right to jail and then of- you have your labor supply again free cheap right and that's what it was all about Right. A lot of people and, don't realize the convict leasing thing and the chain gangs. Oh, yeah. All that. I mean, it was huge. It wasn't just like a small percentage of people. They found all kinds of ways of controlling human beings so they would work for you know subsistence wages. Or if only some places they didn't even get paid with cash, they got you, they get paid in chips or something. Mm-hmm. A company script, you know, script. Yeah, and it was huge. And. That's also something we got to think about. That's really important, Joe. I'm so glad you brought this up because, and Du Bois hammers away at this because, again, he is a socialist, right? Right. So he looks at things from that sort of Marxist sort of perspective of the sort of laborer versus capital. And, And I think it's a very, like, I'm not a communist, but I think it's a very useful lens through which to evaluate history also. And you cannot talk about slavery. Uh, you cannot talk about reconstruction without talking about the economic elements of it here, because this was ultimately right. Sla- capitalism, slavery was driven by capitalism. Like that's what yeah. it was, right? That is it. Like it was like you said, like the animus of against black people. I mean, that sort of helped that you really like animated a lot of it, but it was but it merged. With, right? It merged. It those merged yeah. without the economic incentive. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like the animus is almost a set, an afterthought. That is an enforcement mechanism, right? right. But the mm -hmm. real goal is, like you said, Joe, to have a malleable, rights-free workforce. Right. And by yeah. the way, how are how close are we to sliding back toward that right now? I mean, obviously not literal slavery, but we talk about wage slavery on this on this show all the time because that's what the gig worker is the classic example of this, right? You yeah. want basically somebody like. And, and, and what's crazy is that you slather a veneer of freedom all over it as if there's any real freedom in being a, in, in being a gig worker or, by the way, working for yeah. Amazon. Well, right. I want to point this out that it's really interesting that Du Bois was a socialist. And this, there's, this is actually true, okay, because you hear a lot from the right wing that anti-racism is ethno-communism or cultural Marxism, or they have all these other words for it, but they're actually kind of right because think about it this way, okay? The struggle between labor and capital, every policy, every economic policy, whether it's a tax cut or whether it's a, a bill that like just passed with the, with the coronavirus relief bill, it either favors labor or it favors capital. There's no right. such thing as a neutral bill. Okay. Right. And so raising the minimum wage, for example, favors labor, not capital. And that is why there's so much resistance to it. You hear all these arguments and they're disingenuous. Okay. Because they are basic labor versus capital arguments. And so when the alt-right looks at anti-racism and the drive for equality and calls it cultural Marxism or ethno-communism, okay, they a little bit have a point because what we're asking for is equal treatment. And what that right. means is raising wages for people who are not getting paid enough. It means healthcare. It means all these things. And those benefits go disproportionately to black people and other minorities because white people already work for corporations and get these things. Exactly. Right. So when you start to favor labor, okay, it does disproportionately help minorities. And so this is, this is where this entire conversation comes from. It's interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, they're right in a sense, but they're absolutely wrong in another. That they're also talking about that in terms of anti-PC and cancel mm -hmm. culture, mm -hmm. which no, they're wrong there. Right? <laughs> they're wrong, but <laughs> but you're right, Sean. In that sense, in that economic sense, you're absolutely right. It just yeah. makes no sense otherwise. If you don't if you don't think about it economically, this idea of cultural Marxism is just horseshit. It doesn't make but, right. But what they're actually they're trying to say it without saying it. Mm -hmm. And. and by the way, all this like Tucker Carlson worshiping Martin Luther King now, he was a socialist too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Martin Luther that's King right. was a socialist, right? And, and that's that's a really great point. And it highlights what we're talking about here because it, it demonstrates, like, and by the way, he was a big fan of Du Bois. And so, and because you cannot talk about this stuff without talking, there's no freedom without financial freedom. That's the fucking that's right. point. That's the point. You can't really be equal if you don't have finance because fi money is power, right? And if you don't have if you don't have resources, you are never going to be free. If you are constantly trying to find out where your next meal will come from, you mm -hmm. are not free. And that's the problem. And another strategy to this is debt. And oh, debt oh, in yeah. antebellum <laughs> South was a huge thing to get the, the previously enslaved people free. Right. But you then you imprison them with debt. And the same thing is happening now. That's absolutely right. The same thing. Right. Point. Get people in debt. More and more and more debt. You get rid of people's agency that way. Yep. You really do. The student loan system is student it, loans. It is, it has a quite classic example of it. You can't get a job unless you have a college degree, but you can't get a college degree unless you get you can't get into the corporation without a college degree. 
You can't get the college degree without taking on debt. And you can, therefore, you will spend the rest of the next 10 years basically uh, as a wage slave. You can't do anything but work for this corporation because nothing else will pay, the, will pay the loans. And it is a great way to cage people in without actually having to throw chains around them. But yeah. let's move on I, because we're going to run out of time. We, we, we have great conversations here on the Radical Secular, but uh, we also have shit to cover. We could take this so many places, right? <laughs> I know, so many places. So, But I, now I want to talk about, uh, we get back to Du Bois here. He spends considerable time in the book describing the pervasive lawlessness that dominated the antebellum South once Union troops left. A great deal of this lawlessness revolved around suppressing the African-American vote. Uh, no surprise there. There was also, however, a great deal of voter suppression that was quite legal once the Southern legislatures had ousted the black members who'd been elected to office during the Reconstruction years. I'd like to discuss some of those tactics. also want to point out, and it's, again, something that we do not learn uh, growing up, and that is the number of black legislators. These Southern legislatures were packed with black people, ranging from highly educated black people to black people who just walked off of the, the, the farm. And these people wanted so bad to participate in democracy, right? They didn't want revenge. They just wanted a seat at the table. And this was just beyond the pale for these right. Southern, just beyond the fucking pale. It was the, the, some, of the, some of the speeches that they excerpt from the white politicians from that era, how they describe these people, um, yeah. including people as powerful as something like Frederick Douglass, who, yeah. like you said, Sean, it is smarter, better. Like, right? These Southern legislators were just as backward, just as the Southern legislators are now, these bunch of yahoos. They were yahoos then too. And people like Frederick Douglass came in and they were just completely trash and just beyond the pale for these Southern uh, legislators. You know, Christoph, not only did the African-American legislator do not want revenge, in fact, it's just the opposite. A mm -hmm. lot of the policies that they enacted ended up helping a lot of poor white people. Exactly. A lot. Exactly. The public right? school system. The, the public, public school system. Schools, yeah. And, and then after, of course, after Reconstruction was over, and a lot of, the, a lot of these benefits left of African-American communities, but stayed with a lot of the white communities. I, I mean, it's just, you can't make this up, right? You can't be it's insane. Well, it's, mean, uh, it, when you look at what was can. going on there, it wasn't so much the, the white people were upset about black people getting power, but what they were really upset about is blacks and whites working together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in government. That was yeah. like the worst. That, that Again, like this was for them the the like it was just such a personal affront and it all comes down to what we talk about here i think on the radical secular a lot which is about hierarchy mm -hmm. right yeah and that is what you're i guess i think what you're kind of getting at there sean right is that they if we work together that means we're equals right and they don't want that no one that's wants democracy that. <laughs> that, yeah that's a flattening of power right sharing of power not yeah. hierarchy and we, and, we, and we talk about that here on this show over time, like flattening hierarchy is one of our one of our hobby horses, that separation of church and state. These are the things that are yeah. pre we there is no justice. There is no justice without these things. It, there just isn't. Other than that, it's just power. It's just a peonage up and power down. That's it. To get back to your, your question, Christoph, is mm -hmm. uh, I think it's particularly important these days to focus on the legal tactics, right? Absolutely. They, they have. Mm -hmm. You know, great effect today. Mm -hmm. Most of the violence about pre preventing votes is gone. Not all of it, but most of it, right? That's, but the legal efforts are, have taken its place in many ways, right? They endure and it's like barring people with criminal records. It's still happening, right? Absolutely. It wasn't, look at the whole mass incarceration thing, right? 
how, that, that removed like, I don't know, 6 million voters from mostly African American, or a huge percentage. That's right. From the rolls. I mean, that's a lot of people, especially a in close elections. And then you have the strict ID laws. Studies have shown that they do reduce voter turnout, particularly mm-hmm. for dis- disproportionately for you know people of color. They just do. It's, the studies show that. And the, the citizenship requirements. Also, between after the Civil Rights Act was gutted, right between 2012 and 2018, almost 1,700 polling place closures happened in those short uh, six years, right? The states, especially southern states, just shut down polling areas, right? And that made it a lot harder for people to vote, especially people of lesser means, right? Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and then you have background checks. Background checks, but, you know. on and on. And you know what's important, what you just said, Joe, and I want to point this out before you go mm-hmm. on, and that is yeah. the, the when they gutted the Voting Rights Act and they took out the federal oversight requirement, right? Because right? that's the key, yeah. specifically, because they know. Yeah. And then you can't make this shit up because immediately the southern states that were under this that were, that were covered under this under this uh, this provision immediately began to put in voting restrictions and this goes back to way back that we were talking about at the beginning of the show where the only way they were able to actually get to selma was with what federal troops how, how do you integrate the schools federal troops how do you protect the capital federal troops because mm-hmm. you cannot trust those states you cannot trust them they will do the same fucking thing every fucking time maybe one day they won't but clearly we are not there yet and the reason why it happened immediately is because it was a strategy right mm-hmm. they were they were trying to get rid of the the voting act right strategically they were hammering at it from all sides and they were ready for when it did just like they're ready now when Roe v. Wade disappears. Yep. They're going yep. to do, it's strategic, it's planned, right? It's going to happen immediately. Yep. Well, they, these are, go ahead, show guys, John. Oh, they, well, these are just, these are long-term strategies that these guys have mm-hmm, been using right. and they're playing the long game. And we have to be really clear about this is every bit as much as there were coups against uh, black elected officials following the end of Reconstruction. Now, the voter suppression tactics and the gerrymandering that goes on are coups against democracy. They are local coups against democracy. And it's just, you can't really frame this any other way because Mm -hmm. one person, one vote is the law. And Republicans know now that they cannot win if they follow the law. And I I, want to point out, it, it goes beyond just an implication. These people are coming right out and saying this, okay? Yeah, they are. There's a, a Republican Senate candidate. Her name is Lauren Witzke of Delaware, and she lost in 2020. But she was on CNN and she was quoted. In, it, she was, it was some video that she made for Republicans. And she was saying to them, we will never win again. We will not have a prayer in 2022 or 2024 if we do not get election reform. So <laughs> what a euphemism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> So she says, so I'm going to say of Georgia right now, we are pushing through a bill that gets rid of vote by mail that requires voter ID that bans the ballot drop boxes. It will cut Stacey Abrams off at the knees. Like I said, this is her talking still. Mm. I only care about winning. So she's effectively saying straight up that she wants to cut Stacey Abrams off at the knees. Okay. Who was the one who basically delivered Georgia to the Democrats and that she does, she only cares about winning. And if that means that she's going to stop people from voting, that's what she's going to do. 
And I know we're going to talk about this HR1 later, but we've had some reaction also from Republicans about this. Senator Mike Lee, mm -hmm. he said, I mean, this is apocalyptic language, okay? He says, Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written in hell by the devil himself. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, and, and just because it allows people to vote. Just because it, it ensures a fair vote. Okay. It, it, and that is all it does. That's all it does. And yeah. even Donald Trump said this. He basically yep. said straight up on television, if we let everyone vote, Republicans would never win another election. I remember. I remember yeah. that. And by the way, I love that what's never on the table is we could just change our policies so that it it appeals to more Americans. <laughs> like that's never on the table. Never. You know what I mean? Like, which is like, that would be the easiest thing. If they just changed their policies, they would peel off huge chunks of Democrats. We would, it, we, they would, they really would if they had policies that weren't completely batshit. They would be able to bamboozle a lot of people if they at least maybe just got rid of the race. Racism, but they, they can't. can't. And, and there's no pretense of, the, of this. They intend to seize power regardless of what voters want. Exactly. And you exactly. know what? They, they have no policies. Tax None. Cuts. None. That's what it. Else? The only thing they ever do when they get in power is cut taxes. And then they just sit there and just grift for, for three more years after that. Like, that's what happens. That's what happens. They don't have anything to sell. That They do better in the minority, actually. They do better in the minority because <laughs> all you have to do is tear things down in the minority. Right. You don't have to build anything. I want to just sort of talk now before we run out of time. I want to do, I want to play a little game with you guys. It's called Choose the Era. It's a simple <laughs> game in which you'll have to match the described voter suppression with its occurrence either in 2021 or during Reconstruction. Okay, <laughs> here is the first option. One Southern state introduced bills that would require frequent re-registration. Another legislator legislature introduced a bill requiring long terms of residency in the district. Another bill requires registration at inconvenient times and in inconvenient places, for example, during working hours and in person. Yet another bill requires folks registered to vote to provide the kinds of information that many marginalized communities have difficulty providing as compared to white registrants. And... Here is number two, second quote. <clears throat> Southern states introduced bills requiring voters to produce proof of citizenship in order to register to vote. One state introduced a bill stripping voter registration authority from county clerks and requiring the secretary of state to send voter registration information to the Department of Public Safety for verification. Ten laws cut back on election day registration with five states eliminating election day registration entirely. So, guys, First of all, which passage implies to which era? And what is your reaction to the obvious similarity between these two? I can't honestly say. <laughs> I, I have no idea. It's like both of them seem like present day, what Republicans are doing right now. So right. which is which? So the first one is from Reconstruction. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and this, there was and, one clue. There were, there was a couple clues in there, but the second one is from, and, and I changed some of the language to make it more to, harder to make yeah. the distinction, but the actual actions were definitely are on point like that. I didn't change any of the actual actions. Right. And, it, and it just illustrates the, the, the point. It's a fun way to fun, fun, fun. We're having fun. <laughs> um, but it, it's a way of illustrating the point that it, we're talking about the same fucking thing. It's the same ideas. 
It is the same tactics, sort of upgraded for modern situations, but but really ultimately the same. And it really is awful. So I so I want to uh, also do something similar now with the literacy tests that emerged during the Reconstruction era. And the first implicit literacy test was South Carolina's notorious eight box ballot. You guys are going to love this eight mm. box ballot adopted in 1882. Voters had to put ballots for separate offices in separate boxes. For example, a ballot for the the governor's race put in the box for the Senate seat would be thrown out. But it doesn't end there. But it doesn't end there. The, the order of the boxes was continuously shuffled so that literate people could not assist illiterate voters by arranging their ballots in the proper order. The adoption of the secret ballot constituted another implicit literacy test since it prohibited anyone from assisting an illiterate voter in, in casting his vote, by the way, because it would have been a his at that point. In 1890, Southern states began to adopt explicit literacy tests to disenfranchise voters. This had a differential racial impact since 40 to 60% of black voters were illiterate compared to 8 to 18% of white folks. Poor, illiterate white people opposed the test, realizing that, oh, wow, they too would be disenfranchised. <laughs> All of a sudden, now they care. To placate them, though, don't worry, Southern states adopted an, quote, understanding clause or a grandfather clause, which entitled voters who could not pass a literacy test to vote, provided they could demonstrate their understanding of a meaning of a passage in the Constitution. Here's the key to the satisfaction of the registrar or mm. were descended from someone eligible to vote in, in 1867, the year before black folks attained the franchise. Discriminatory uh, administration ensured that black folks would not be eligible to vote through the understanding clause. So we'll, uh, so look, well, will you guys connect this literacy test sort of element to the kinds of voter suppression sort of initiatives that conservatives are using today? Sure. I mean, from a narrative perspective, right? Literacy mm -hmm. tests had a rationale. They were framed as a reasonable, logical step. Clearly, you want educated people to be the electorate, right? It makes sense, right? Who would oppose that? But many of the voter, <laughs> many of the voter suppression efforts today are rationalized in similar ways, made to look mm -hmm. reasonable, right? We're not That's doing this because we're evil. We're doing this because this is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at the way these efforts are implemented, then you see their true purpose, right? And it's to dis disenfranchise target groups, whether it's urban poor or whether it's African-Americans or people of color, they are written in specifically targeting groups. And this has been clearly proven by courts over and over again. This is not something, it's not my opinion, right? <laughs> this is, you go to the court records, they're all over the place, even in Texas, right? Even in red states, the, the mm -hmm. courts found these, this thing to be true. The rationale for these efforts are deceptive and Orwellian. You know, they are. They always have been. Voting restrictions are needed to protect, quote unquote, the integrity of elections and restore faith in the voting process. It's the same language <laughs> it was used so then. so Orwellian, like so Orwellian. Yeah. The same language it was used then is being used now. That's literally right. verbatim, right? Same language. Uh, literally tests were used as a rationale and they were outlawed in 1965 by the Voting Rights Act, right? And we know that it was bullshit, right? These literacy tests were meant to, to, to disenfranchise people. Now that rhetoric is used for other methods, and we know it's bullshit today. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because you know that when it comes to any government policy, okay, Republicans are normally terminally allergic to considering outcomes, <laughs> they don't want right. to. They don't want to hear about unemployment rates or child poverty rates or any of these other things. But when it comes to voting, they want to know all yeah. about outcomes, right? All of a sudden, 
Yeah, all of a sudden. So, but let's talk about outcomes and like, for example, the address requirement and the mm -hmm. photo ID, okay? Now it seems like it's to a white person, to you and me, we have addresses, we have photo ID, it's no big deal. But if you're Native American, you might not have an address. If you're a, a homeless person in a city, you don't have an address. So, you know, and it also comes down to other disparities, like fewer black people have cars than white mm -hmm. people, especially yep. those who rely on public transport. So they would be less likely to have a driver's license. So they would have to go get a special ID that they wouldn't otherwise need. And this may seem trivial, but for a lot of marginalized people, it's a heavy lift. Yeah. What if you don't have your birth certificate? What if you exactly. don't even know who your parents are, right? What if you can't afford the 30 bucks or whatever it costs for your to get your state issued ID? These things are trivial for whites and they're not necessarily trivial for blacks. And we, as we know, poverty makes everything 10 times harder right. and it, it also exactly. kills it kills people's motivation. Mm -hmm. Many minorities already don't see their vote really making a difference and so throwing up roadblocks and hurdles is just like, oh, it just increases apathy even more. So this is fucking criminal to disenfranchise American citizens in this manner and Republicans know exactly what the fuck they are doing. They it do. is. It, they know it is a targeted thing. You know what? I want to make an analogy here because I read this earlier and that is they, one of the registration requirements and I can't remember what Southern backward fucking <laughs> reconstruction era state, but they were like, they're, they said like, look, you had to have a, uh, you had to have an address, right? We mm -hmm. hear that, right? But back then, black neighborhoods didn't even have street signs, right? Oh. Or, or street numbers, or house right. numbers. So there was no recorded place to have a fucking address, but right. that was a requirement for the. So, so to your point, Sean, mm -hmm. it's exactly the same thing. They know what people what is difficult to for urban poor, for rural poor people to get their act together. It, and look navigating a bureaucracy is it takes persistence it takes right. time right i have time if i'm working 12 hours a day at amazon i might not have time right no. i might not have time to take the time off of work maybe i can't take time off work maybe i don't have paid time off right i mean and by the way what if i work for some place where they purposely keep me at 30 hours a week so that i'm not a full-time employee so i'm not eligible for benefits that's a, what if these are the kind of things that these purposeful hurdles and i want we know these things are happening right now, but what I want to, and the whole theme of this whole show is that, look, this has been happening almost verbatim, like you said, Joe, almost verbatim back in Reconstruction and all yeah. through the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, we made some great points, Christoph. I mean, look, people, it, it takes skill. It's a learned skill to be able to navigate bureaucracies. Yep. Right. And networks matter. Yes. social networks mm -hmm. and you can see it happening in like the distribution of the vaccines right even though mm -hmm. there is an effort to try to vaccinate people of color because they are more susceptible to this disease they die mm -hmm. in higher numbers this is Absolutely. very clear right very clear if you look at the percentages of who's getting vaccinated white people are higher mm -hmm. despite yep. that because they have those networks mm -hmm. and they have they've developed these skills yep because they privilege them to get more vaccines and they're getting more vaccines Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, poverty is in itself a full time job setting us right it, because and also the fight or flight mode, the things that you think about are not these sort of long term strategies. You think about right now, how am I going to survive tomorrow? My car broke down. What am I going to do? How am I going to get to work? Do I have a car in the fucking first place? Oh, by the way, I might get COVID-19 on the way to work because I got to take the bus now. I mean, it goes on and on. And so right. we, we talked about the economic element. Huge. No paid leave. 
You want to no take the day off to do this? You're exactly. going to lose money. You're going to lose your job. You're, you could lose your job. You're certainly going to lose money. And this is what we're talking about. And so like the takeaway from everything we've talked about today is that conservatives love power and domination way more than they like democracy, like way more. So the question is, what do we on the left do about it? And the only answer I have to that is fight like hell for the to make sure that the For the People Act becomes the law of the land is the foundation upon which um, any rebuild of America's political and social Social infrastructure must rest. Let's talk about what's in the bill. And I, some people that are way more informed than me have explained it as follows. Broadly speaking, HR1 covers three major areas, voting and elections, campaign finance, and ethics. First, it would reduce barriers that keep eligible students from registering to vote and then casting their vote. It would set minimum uniform nationwide standards for elections and provide funding to increase the security of, of elections. Second, H.R. 1 is part of the antidote to Citizens United. It would increase the transparency of spending on elections and campaign ads and strengthen protections against foreign interference in our campaigns. And the third element is ethics. H.R. 1 would require increased disclosure of lobbying activities and put into law ethical guidelines preventing conflicts of interest by staff, appointees, members of Congress, and even presidents. Most obviously relevant to our conversation today are the provisions in H.R. 1 designed to defend citizens' rights to select their representatives as opposed to the other way around. And to that end, H.R. 1 would end the political party's control over drawing con congressional districts, a process which is abused across the country by both Democrats and Republicans. I have a little bit of an issue there, but we can come mm. back to that. Gerrymandering herds tens of millions of Americans into bizarre geographic constructions for the sole purpose of being able to win more races with the same number of votes. H.R. 1 would require states to use a nonpartisan redistricting commission to draw those lines. H.R. 1 also takes voter registration reforms that have proven successful across dozens of states over multiple election cycles and mandates them nationally. It requires states to allow online and same-day voter registration and strengthens protections against efforts to hinder, deceive, or intimidate voters from registering and casting their ballots. Those are just several of the heaps of anti-fascist goodies stuffed in this wonderful piece of legislation. Am I the only person here who finds himself getting like low-key salivating when I hear the robust defense of democracy in this bill? Am I the only one, guys? Am I the only no, one? No, no. <laughs> I think I might be a little bit aroused, actually. I, I, I might actually be aroused. <laughs> it just sounds so good. It sounds so fucking good. I mean, the idea of being able to actually pass this thing and like, look, uh -huh. we know the odds are long, like real long, and it requires a filibuster, right? I mean, it requires yeah. filibuster reform and maybe Joe Manchin, I don't know, uh, ha maybe having a near-death experience and waking up and being like, oh my God, democracy, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very powerful bill. I mean, historically, it, it, it's up there. It's one of the top of the last 50 years. I mean, honestly, it's it, the consequences of passing this bill are huge. Mm -hmm. I hope it goes through. I'm not holding my breath, but because it is so consequential, I think that the right will fight this tooth and nail. And they oh, yeah. are. Hades, the devil himself wrote the bill, right? So um, <laughs> we have to remember the reason why all these efforts suppress the vote in the first place, right? It's about fear and power. Right? They mm -hmm. fear losing power. That's it. And But honestly, uh, having this bill is a great step forward. Just having it, just the fact that it's there and it's, it's, it's gotten as far as it has, at least uh, the momentum is in the right direction. And that after the Trump era, 
I can't. I, mean, I hate saying that because it doesn't feel over yet to me. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. After the Trump era, it does feel like a breath of fresh air. Well, yeah, totally. This is really a situation. Okay, if you look at this bill, I mean, it is existential. It is existential mm-hmm. for both the left and the right. Okay, because it really is what and what's so genius about it is it forces the conversation. <laughs> it forces the right, right to go on record more and more again and again being against voting, right? Because yeah. that's the only way they could spin this bill as having anything wrong with it. So they're already doing it. I mean, Fox and all of the right-wing pundits are just going insane over this bill and they will fight it tooth and nail. I mean, I don't know. I think Joe Manchin's arm will be twisted. I'm, I'm sure that they'll work on they'll work on every Democrat. All they have to do is peel off one. And this mm-hmm. is not something that can be passed through reconciliation. So we really do... Mm. In order to get this bill passed, we need to end the filibuster. And the filibuster anyway is already something that is an anti-reconstruction bill. I mean, mean, or or, or procedure rather. It's Mm -hmm. it's, it's not in the Constitution. It's -hmm. in the Senate rules. And it was written specifically to make the Senate less democratic. And it's something that it has to go. I mean, look, it's just, look, it's appalling that we even need this bill. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the the idea is that the the idea that. Districts should be fair and compact. If you want a fair election, let a computer draw the district. Absolutely. Don't even have a human get involved in this. Okay. And and they don't want a fair election. And it's obvious. It's been obvious for a long time. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is what they've been doing and that they're going to fight this because this is a last ditch power grab by a party that knows it cannot win fair elections. And it's trying to insulate itself from accountability to citizens. I mean, <laughs> you see the result, okay? In this, in the COVID relief bill, not one Republican voted for it, and yet, even among Republicans, the bill is popular. It right. has something like seventy to seventy-five percent support nationally for this bill, and yet, not one Republican voted for it. And that, folks, is the result of gerrymandering. That, folks, exactly. is the result of a minority party that doesn't think that it ever has to answer to voters. So, in a true democracy. We would have automatic registration at age 18. It would be done through people's phones and tied to their social security number, not their address. People don't need an address. You just look at their location history and establish what county they spend most of their time in. So for those who do have addresses, there would be no question about registration, vote by mail for those who wanted it. I mean, with all of our modern technology, the only reason we don't have a fair vote right now is because that outcome would destroy the Republican Party. They know it. They know that we know it, and they now know <laughs> that their only chance of staying in power is that they get to choose who votes and who doesn't, and it's fucking criminal. It is. It's absolutely criminal. And there was a lot that you said there that I think is really important. And I'm laughing just because it's not funny. And we're sitting here laughing at this because none of this is fucking funny. But it's but it's comical, the point like that the their only argument now is the most fundamental part of living in a social democracy in a republic, right? A, a, a democratic mm-hmm. republic is voting. The most fundamental thing, they're like, yeah, no, we don't really care about that anymore. We are a political party. We just don't care about that anymore. And in fact, we are hostile to it. I mean, it's just, it is comical. It is comical that this is where they are. And again, it's just, it's like this unbelievable like short-sightedness of like, I mean, how long do you think you can keep this up? Like how long can you keep this up? And by the way, in terms of the filibuster, let's talk, let me just like hit on that real quick. 
I don't know if you guys saw this, but Joe Manchin went on some show saying that he'd be open to filibuster reform. And that means that if you want to do the 60, you want to do if you want to do a filibuster, you really do have to go up there and just hold up talk. Someone mm-hmm. has to go up there and just read. That's like mm-hmm. have the classic filibuster. Wow, imagine so, that. Can you imagine? So yeah. then, it, then, then it becomes something that you only use when you absolutely must. And so, and my other, and my last ditch thing for Joe Manchin is that if someone can show him, and I think uh, he has a relationship with Biden, I think they can connect mm-hmm. on this yeah. probably. But if you can show him that, like, if you want Democrats to have any shot at ever having power, ever, then. You have to get rid of the filibuster. Like we will lose, we will like we are only winning elections by the skin of our teeth. And if all of these bills that have been proposed in these mm-hmm. legislatures go through, we will simply not win elections anymore. We certainly will not have the House of Representatives. That'll be gone. And then right. the Senate, we barely have even our toenails in the Senate anymore. So yeah. Like we may be able to win the White House, but that's useless if you can't pay pass bills because then they spend two years telling you, like holding up legislation. And then Mm -hmm. in the midterms, they and then four years later, they say he did nothing. Right. Yeah. And it works for them. And it works. And it works. And it works. Look, guys, we are bumping up against time. Um, Does anybody have any final thoughts? Well, I think we said a lot. I'm really happy with what what we got through. So I I think uh, for me, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I have one thought, and that is just from the standpoint of honor, because the right always talks about honor all the time. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything, there's anything about America that is sacred, it is voting. Mm -hmm. And anyone who ever fought in our military to defend our freedoms, anyone who Mm -hmm. has ever flown a flag or says they love America, if you don't support voting, you have no honor. Yeah, You might as well never have even... You, you, you might as well no, no these people who fought and died for us died for nothing if we don't have the vote that's and that's it right that's absolutely right man that's absolutely right and you know we are we care about democracy on this show that's what we care about probably more than anything else is justice really and there is no you can't have justice unless there's a democracy in, in a country right like there is no justice uh powerful people will take advantage and that's what ends up happening and that's what we're seeing and that's what we're fighting against here at the radical secular so okay once again remember that if you like our show make sure to subscribe leave a review check out the radicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Christoph Defo. Thank you for being here. Thank you, uh, Sean and Joe, for being here as well. It was an outstanding show. And remember that wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.